From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. An appeals court rules that EPA can't suspend an Obama rule curbing methane from new wells and pipes. There's really three kinds of pollution that come from these wells and pipes. There's methane, which is a very powerful global warming pollutant. There's hydrocarbons, which contribute to ozone smog. And then there's also specific hydrocarbons that can cause cancer. Also, Henry David Thoreau was born 200 years ago, but his ideas and writing still inspire. And I found a little paperback book in a bookstore, had a green cover, and the title was Walden and Civil Disobedience. And I pulled it off and started to read it. And standing there in the bookstore was just captured by this voice. Preserving the woods where Thoreau went to live deliberately. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRI and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. When first emitted, methane is around 80 times more powerful than carbon dioxide as a global warming gas. And in a setback to the Trump administration's push to roll back regulations, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit has ruled that the EPA can't suspend rules to control methane and other pollutants from new oil and gas wells. Some experts predict the administration will also lose a case just filed by the attorneys general of California and New Mexico against the Interior Department's suspension of a similar rule for public lands. We turn now to David Doniger, a lawyer in the Clinton administration who litigated the EPA case for his present employer, NRDC. Welcome to Living on Earth, David. Thanks. Nice to be here. Now, when the EPA announced it was suspending enforcement of the methane rule, what were the reasons that it gave for suspending it, and what was it trying to accomplish? Well, the oil and gas industry come to Pruitt, the EPA administrator, their longtime buddy from working with him as an attorney general for Oklahoma, and they said, take this EPA rule away from us. And Pruitt issued a stay, and the basis for the stay was a claim that the companies had not had a fair opportunity to comment a year ago when EPA initially issued the rule. And the Court of Appeals turned him down flat, saying that's all trumped up. They had plenty of opportunities to comment on each of the issues, and you don't have the authority to issue a stay of these regulations. Now, this isn't the only methane rule that industry is pushing back against. I gather there's also one that the Senate voted to maintain regarding methane coming from public lands. What's that rule exactly? Yeah, the Bureau of Land Management in the Interior Department also regulates the pollution from these drilling and processing operations when they occur on public lands. And that rule covers both new equipment and existing equipment. And it's grounded in a statute that tells the federal government to prevent the waste of methane, which means throwing the stuff away without getting proper royalties for it. Even though the Senate refused to kill this rule, the Bureau of Land Management has decided to stay it, to suspend it indefinitely while they work on a rule to repeal it. And this is illegal also. So what does all this mean for the oil and gas industry, the Interior Department, the Bureau of Land Management, the EPA? What's going on here? Well, the oil and gas industry is really split. There are a lot of companies that have complied with the rule already. They've done their leak detection. They're fixing leaks when they find them. And then there are others which are resisting. 
I think out of a sort of cussedness that they don't want the federal EPA telling them what to do. How hard is it to limit emissions of methane from these oil and gas operations? Well, limiting the emissions of methane is really simple. It's a matter of using infrared cameras to detect the leaks, and then you fix the problems that you found, a leaky valve, a broken seal, something that needs to be tightened up. This should be pretty simple stuff. It's just zipping it up. It's not requiring any major change in the design of equipment. Compared to the billions of dollars in revenue from these oil and gas wells, the expense of checking to make sure they don't leak is pretty trivial. What are the public health risks Ah. of these emissions of methane? There's really three kinds of pollution that come from these wells and the pipes that gather up the gas and take it to the processing plants and so on. There's methane, which is a very powerful global warming pollutant. And there's hydrocarbons, which contribute to smog. And ozone smog is a problem in many of these, even uh, Western areas, which you'd think of as rural, have smog problems. And then there's also specific hydrocarbons like benzene and other ones that are particularly toxic that can cause cancer. So there are problems for the near neighbors, the communities in the region, and for the whole globe. So what's going to happen next? Well, in this case, I think this is it. The court has issued its decision. EPA is unlikely to appeal it. The stay is gone. The rules are back in effect. Now Scott Pruitt has to decide whether he wants to do the oil and gas industry the favor of issuing a stay or deferring enforcement in some other way. And we'll hold him to account if he does. There's many other actions that Pruitt and other cabinet officials have taken to yank rules out of effect with no public process. And those actions are in danger now. We're talking about rules for other air pollutants, for chemical plant safety, for pesticides. The Transportation Department, they've yanked some rules for carbon accounting in highway planning. The Interior Department is yanking their own methane rules and some others. The Occupational Health and Safety Administration has yanked some worker safety rules. All of these things now, we may be able to hold the government to account. David Doniger is director of the Climate and Clean Air Program at the NRDC. Thanks so much for taking the time today, David. Thanks a lot, Steve. Global warming is on track to devastate the U.S. economy in years ahead if temperatures are allowed to rise unabated. This according to a study just published in the journal Science. Economists with the Climate Impact Lab project that the poorest third of counties in America would be most harmed, with incomes cut as much as 20 percent. The lab is a consortium of experts from the universities of California, Chicago, Rutgers, and the Rhodium Group, and this forecast used a wide variety of climate models and economic data. Economist Solomon Shang is one of the lead researchers. He teaches public policy at UC Berkeley and joins us now. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks for having me. Now, Which regions of the United States does your study predict will be hit hardest in this climate disruption scenario? That's actually one of the most interesting and surprising findings of this study. What we found is that the southern United States, southern parts of the Midwest, and also the Atlantic coast are some of the most hardest hit parts of the country. There's a pretty good explanation for that once we did the analysis, we sort of understood what's going on. What happens is that, you know, the economic impact of warming is much worse if you're already pretty hot. So you can imagine going from 90 to 95 degrees is a much bigger deal than going from 70 to 75 degrees. 
And so because the southern parts of the country are already so warm, a bit of warming does a lot more harm to them than to the northern parts of the country that tend to be cooler. And in some cases, even, you know, the north can benefit. Places along the border with Canada are so cold that they're actually, you know, they have people who are getting sick from it being so cold. And this is an important finding because the northern parts of the country tend to be wealthier today and the southern parts of the country tend to be poorer. So by hurting the South more, you're really hurting the poor population in the country relatively more. And this, we think, means inequality within the country could actually worsen. Talk to me about that inequality. How much money are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about places in the South that could possibly experience losses, you know, between 10 and 20% of their income in sort of a central case. Now, it's very hard to predict the future. So what we've done is we've actually thought about a whole range of different scenarios that might occur. And so in some cases, it gets actually much higher than that. In some cases, it gets lower. But the central estimate is for the South, large swaths of the South to lose between 10 and 20%. And that's a lot. That's actually much worse than what was experienced during the Great Recession in the United States. And it's not that different from what parts of the Midwest experienced during the Dust Bowl. Talk to me about those regions that you say will have modest benefits. Sounds like they're going to be making more money. So there are parts of the United States that could benefit from some warming, although those gains are more hazy, you know, in the data because they're sort of mild benefits. But those are areas where, you know, you might save because you don't have to heat your house as much if things get a little bit warmer. So those are places in the Rockies or along the northern border with Canada, as well as New England. You know, we looked at all different aspects of the economy. And there's one place where the north actually gets hit worse than the south. Oh, when you look at property crime, turns out that the only way that the climate really affects property crime rates across the country is that when it's really cold and there's a lot of snow on the ground, nobody goes out and takes each other's stuff. So no one steals a car if it's covered in snow. And so right now, the North gets a lot of cold days and a lot of snow that protects it from this, this type of impact. But in the future, as things warm up, it loses that protective cold. And so you actually see property crime rates rise in the North, but essentially nothing happens in the South. What about violent crime rates in your scenario? So we also studied violent crime, and violent crime responds to the environment very differently than property crime. We actually see that if you warm up populations, and this is actually true outside the U.S. as well, we see violent crime rates go up very steadily, pretty much for everyone. It doesn't matter what your initial temperature is. So we see violent crime rates rise by about 5% across the entire country. So looking at some of the maps and charts that you have with your study, it looks like South Texas and Florida are really going to be in trouble in a warming scenario. How much trouble exactly for those places would you predict? Those are the parts of the country where you could be seeing counties losing upwards of 20% of their income. And that's due to the combination of what we talked about before, that those places are really hot. And so getting hotter is extremely costly. But there's an additional issue that arises along the Gulf Coast, which is the effects of sea level rise interacting with hurricanes. And so places like Texas, Louisiana, and Florida end up having really large costs along their coastlines due to the fact that as the sea level rise goes up, the storms that arrive are going to have bigger surges. And in the future, we expect to have a changing pattern of hurricanes where sometimes there will be more of them. And sometimes they will be stronger. And so that can increase the economic losses, you know, year over year for those reasons quite substantially. So your research then is indicating in a general way, as well as those specific places, 
that the regions that are going to have the most economic damages from uh, climate disruption are presently very politically conservative strongholds. To what extent do you think your research might be able to, uh, well, change the discussion with those lawmakers and their constituents? Well, first, just to be clear, you know, all of our work was completely unrelated to the current political landscape. I mean, we've been working on this for many, many years. We didn't know these types of results until, you know, now. So the fact that people may not have taken these economic consequences into account in making their previous judgments about or terms of how much they're concerned about climate change, maybe that's okay. Nobody knew that this was going to be what we saw in the data. But what I, you know, what we're hoping is that now the public can have a well-informed dialogue about how we want to manage the climate based on what we can see, at least at this point, about what might be lying ahead. So how can your research be used to come up with, uh, say, a more accurate social cost of carbon, a metric that can inform perhaps legislation, maybe carbon tax, other types of policies? Yeah, and a lot of our work is exactly aiming at trying to inform the social cost of carbon. You know, it's the social cost of carbon doesn't just reflect what people in Oklahoma or in California are going to feel. It also reflects the fact that when I drive my car here in California, the carbon dioxide goes up in the atmosphere, circles the planet like over 80 times, and is affecting people all over the world. And so we are undertaking a major effort to take what we've learned from this analysis and expand it to the whole world. And then we'll be using those numbers to compute the social cost of carbon that could be used by regulators in any country, really, not just the United States. This analysis, we show that the southern United States is the most heavily impacted because it's hot relative to the north. But if you keep going south, it just keeps getting hotter and hotter. So you think about Mexico, Central America, these places are going to experience things probably even more intense than the American south. And so it's really important that we understand what's coming ahead for them and that we account for those losses to the global society. What about population increase? Here in the United States, uh, we go from roughly 300 million people at the turn of the century back there at the year 2000. By the middle of the century, it's projected we'll be over 400 million people. The effects of climate disruption reducing the economic prospects of folks in the South plus this population rise equals what, do you think? Yeah, so one of the major challenges in economics generally as a field is just how do we maintain living standards and well-being for a population that's growing? You know, it takes more resources to support more people moving ahead into the future. And so what you try to do is maintain economic growth, which allows us to produce more material assets at least as fast as the population is growing. Because if you just have more people in a place with the same number of material assets, then you have to start subdividing them more and more and more, and everyone becomes a little poorer. What climate change does is it actually slows down the economic growth rate. It puts like a handicap on us in this race between economic growth and population growth. And so it makes it even harder for us. We have to be even more innovative. We need to work harder. And so what I think climate change is going to do is it's going to make it a lot harder to meet you know, the standards of living that people expect, particularly in the regions that are hardest hit. So people really dislike having long periods of unemployment or having long recessions. And one way I've put it to some folks is the climate change imposes something that's on the scale or sometimes bigger than a recession, except it doesn't just go away. It's not like we just recover from it. Once you have it, it's here to stay. And so we think about whether or not we can make changes today that will avoid those types of outcomes. And those are the types of questions we should be asking ourselves. Solomon Shang is an economist and associate professor of public policy at the University of California, Berkeley. 
Thank you so much, Professor, for taking the time today. Thanks for having me. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. Henry David Thoreau was a great nature writer and thinker, and if he were still alive, he'd celebrate his 200th birthday on July 12th. Thoreau was not widely read in his lifetime, yet his book Walden has become an American classic, and his essay Civil Disobedience inspired nonviolent leaders such as Mahatma Gandhi and the Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr. Two hundred years after Thoreau's birth, his legacy lives on, not only in his complex prose, but also in the woods of Concord, Massachusetts, around Walden Pond. He famously wrote about his two years living there in a simple hut, though he frequently went home to his mother to get his laundry done and for a home-cooked meal. Conservationists, scholars, teachers, even a rock star have helped preserve the legacy of Thoreau, and Living on Earth's Jenny Doring went to the woods to find out how and why they're keeping the sage of Walden alive. In summer, Walden Pond is a cool and deep blue-green oasis surrounded by broadleaf forest, the verdant trees in full leaf. A pleasant sandy beach curves along its eastern shore, where lifeguards watch over children and adults who venture in for a swim. But this is no ordinary swimming hole. It's just down the road from the town of Concord, where Henry David Thoreau and other transcendentalists like Ralph Waldo Emerson, Margaret Fuller, and Nathaniel Hawthorne developed their philosophy. In close proximity to these luminaries, and as the location of the cabin where Thoreau lived deliberately for two years, Walden has been called the birthplace of the American conservation movement. Yet it wasn't a trackless remote wilderness then. And just a short drive from Boston, it's now visited by nearly 700,000 people each year. Many walk the path that winds along its shore to the site of Thoreau's cabin, the simple 10 by 15 wood structure long gone, but its original location marked by granite blocks and an impressive pile of stones left in tribute to the writer that grows year by year. But the pond and nearby cabin are just the tip of the iceberg, says Kathy Anderson, the executive director of the Walden Woods Project. Thoreau lived in the woods, and um, while his cabin was on the shores of Walden Pond, he spent most of his life walking around the woods of Walden Woods. Anderson's nonprofit was founded in part to protect those woods, which have diminished over the years. A major highway now bisects Walden Woods, and the town of Concord's old landfill sits where Thoreau used to roam. But the Walden Woods Project also exists to carry on Thoreau's legacy of reconnecting people with the outdoors. Anderson says today, that's needed more urgently than ever. There's a disconnect between kids and nature, and we have to reconnect that. In the woods not far from the pond, I see the seeds of that reconnection being planted with the help of several mason jars full of brownish water. These jars that are on the table that are kind of murky, this is what we call pond glop. <laughs> and is that a technical term? <laughs> it sure is. Ecologist Matt Byrne and 20 or so adults sit in the shade in a clearing in the woods. 
They're teachers, here to learn. One woman asks Byrne what the curious little creature in her mason jar of pond scum is. It's like this red squiggle. Oh, the red squiggle. That's a chironomid midge larva. It's a flying insect. It's a little... They seem fascinated by the little creatures in their jars and some others that Byrne collected from the forest nearby. A wood frog, a water scorpion, a red spotted newt, and a spotted salamander. They're art teachers, science teachers, and even an elementary school librarian. The Walden Woods Project is schooling these teachers in how to bring their students outdoors, or to bring the outdoors in, using Thoreau as a guide. They even get to meet the man himself. I am living at the pond to meet life, uh, be it good or be it bad. Richard Smith does a professional impression of Henry David Thoreau. And all of a sudden, it's a warm July day in 1847. I felt that for too long, I was the observer of my life and not the participant. Smith sports a beard just around his chin, reminiscent of Thoreau's style, and wears a tweed vest and trousers. He keeps a straight face as he channels Thoreau's kind of dry humor. Have you seen Mr. Emerson's house over on the Cambridge Turnpike? Yes, sir. I live Lovely. in very dangerous prosperity when I am over there. <laughs> Enjoying plenty of solitude at Walden Pond gave Thoreau the space to reflect on the injustices in his society. One teacher asks him to tell them about the night he spent in jail, which he describes in his famous essay on the duty of civil disobedience. Oh, have you been to jail? <laughs> it is a novel and interesting experience. I was arrested last summer, uh, about the end of July. I was walking into Concord to have my shoe repaired, and uh, Sam Staples, the, the constable, stopped me and said that I'd not paid my tax, which I knew. And uh, he even offered to pay it for me. Well, I said, I am not hard up. It is just a principle. That principle was that Thoreau refused to support slavery and the war against Mexico with his taxes. So he said he would have to lock me up. I said, well, now is as good a time as any, Sam. <laughs> so I was put in jail for the night. In the end, Thoreau's aunt paid the tax, and he was released the next morning. I said to Sam that because I did not pay the tax, I should not have to go. But he said that they needed the room. <laughs> and so they had to let me go. But because I was there due to my conscience, I felt that I was freer than any of my fellow Concordians who had paid the tax. Thoreau's act of civil disobedience would inspire both Gandhi and the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. in the struggles against injustice they led many decades later. The essay and Walden have helped many discover their life's passion, including Laura Dasso Walls, now an English literature professor and Thoreau biographer. She says when she was in high school in the 60s, she felt lost didn't feel like I belonged, wasn't quite sure who I was. And I found a little paperback book in a bookstore, had a green cover, and the title was Walden and Civil Disobedience. And I pulled it off and started to read it. And standing there in the bookstore was just captured by this voice. So she bought the book and carried it with her everywhere. And during things like football rallies, where I had felt most isolated and alone, um, these were mandatory, of course. I would perform my act of civil disobedience by sitting on the grassy knoll where all the students and teachers would pass, and I would read my Walden, make sure that the cover was visible. And Thoreau's words about charting one's own course and going one's own way helped her figure out who she was. It's not like a handbook, right? Do this. It is a way for you to figure out how to 
make the decisions about your life and your future by consulting you know, your own innermost purpose and your own sense of what is right for you. Through Walden on civil disobedience and other works, Thoreau would have a profound impact on both individuals and intellectual life. But he is not easy reading. My name is Carrie Conlon, and I teach at Lexington High School in Lexington, Massachusetts. After years of struggling with teaching Thoreau, Conlon briefly gave up. I took a couple years off from teaching Walden. I encountered some opposition from students, not only to the difficulty of their reading sometimes, but to kind of the message or the point of Thoreau's visit to Walden and the point of his writing Walden. But visiting Walden Woods makes that easier. So on a gray November morning, Conlon brings her students on a bumpy bus ride from nearby Lexington High School. I just want them to walk in the, the actual places where Henry walked. I want them to walk on the, on the soil that he walked upon. I want them to just enjoy being outside of the classroom, the experiential quality of what, what we're doing. Some students grumbled that Thoreau wasn't as productive as he could have been spending so much time observing the natural world. Because these are high-achieving kids who do their homework, they want good grades, they value being busy. And so I think there's a little, still a little suspicion that he's um, someone who's just outside sitting around. But I, they also can see that we talked a lot about productive idleness and being mindful about when you choose to do nothing. So it's not just like empty time, but it's actually restorative. And I think that's helped them understand where he's coming from a little bit more. In fact, Thoreau was active in his environment, walking and chronicling in his 24 years of journals, places as far away as Maine and Minnesota, as well as his local landscape. As the students walk a woodland path where Thoreau himself might have trodden, ecologist Matt Byrne of the Walden Woods Project asks the students about the trees here the pitch pine, white birch, hickory, and oak. Does anyone have a sense of how old this forest probably is, just looking at it? Byrne, who earlier schooled the teachers, is now face-to-face -face with the students. I'd have to guess it's about maybe 100-ish, 150 at most, I think. Another student disagrees. I'd say at least a few hundred. I mean, it's not like he was walking around the Great Plains. There was a forest here, too, and he was around. That was more than 100 years ago. No, but a lot of those cut down. So if you look at the trees here, none of these trees is much more than 40 years old. Byrne explains that when Thoreau said, I went to the woods, he didn't mean a wilderness. The woods that he went to was a very active wood. There would have been a lot of clearing throughout that forest. In Henry's day, forest products were one of the most important things that the land was used for. And so, up until the or very early 1900s, the vast majority of Massachusetts, 90% of the landscape would have been cleared. But there was still plenty of nature in Walden Woods, and Thoreau felt closer to the essence of life here. Again, actor Richard Smith channeling Thoreau's transcendentalism. When I look at a tree, when I look at a pond, when I look at all of nature, I feel as if I'm looking directly into the face of God. Living in the woods, I am surrounded by the divine. It is not only within me, but it is without me as well. Thoreau's writings left a record for future generations, which would serve also as a guide to protecting the wooded landscape he roamed. Kathy Anderson again. The importance of protecting Walden Woods is you're also preserving 
the literary legacy of the land that inspired Thoreau and his writings. And you're creating a place where people can go and see what Thoreau experienced in his life. And for more than 100 years, much of the woods were left alone and visited by Thoreau's admirers. But by the 1980s, the rising price of real estate had developers seeing potential profits for two big projects on all that wooded land. One was an office park, a 147,000 square foot office park. It was going to have parking for over 500 cars, and it was going to have a terrible impact on the historic and ecological integrity of Thoreau's Walden Woods. The other was a condominium complex on the western border of, uh, of Walden Woods. Local officials were faced with what seemed a zero-sum choice, either cancel the projects and forego the revenue they might bring, or greenlight the development and blot out key parts of the little nature left in this iconic place. I mean, Walden really is a symbol of conservation. If we can't protect the place that gave birth to the idea of conservation through Thoreau's writings, how can we ever hope to protect other places around the world? Fortunately, a local group of citizens had faith in Thoreau's original vision of a healthy balance between society and nature. They banded together and petitioned local regulators to block the project, battling criticism that preserving Walden Woods would shut out residents in need of moderately priced housing in the booming area. But they did get their story out there on CNN. And Don Henley happened to be in his kitchen in Los Angeles watching CNN when the story appeared. That's rock star Don Henley of the Eagles. When he was in high school and again in college, he had a couple of very influential teachers who introduced him to Thoreau and Emerson's writings at a time when Don was really struggling with, you know, spirituality, questions of self-reliance, career decisions. He derived a great deal of support from reading Thoreau and Emerson, and it stayed with him for years and years and years. So when Henley heard that the woods that had inspired Thoreau were threatened, he decided to act. Henley leveraged his rock star status and popularity, organizing benefit concerts with other stars, where they played Eagles songs like Desperado and Hotel California. Don Henley has said Hotel California, the Eagles' most popular song, was in part about excess and, quote, the dark underbelly of the American dream. Here's an excerpt of what Thoreau wrote in Walden about essentially the same sickness in 19th century America. The nation itself is an unwieldy and overgrown establishment, cluttered with furniture and tripped up by its own traps, ruined by luxury and heedless expense, by want of calculation and a worthy aim. Don Henley and his friends ultimately raised $22 million for the Walden Woods Project, the nonprofit he founded in 1990. And the land the nonprofit safeguards isn't just sitting there idly. It helps keep Thoreau's legacy alive. The reason that this place was founded is because Thoreau was inspired by this place. And as a result, Walden became this protected space that could inspire millions for years to come after him. Whitney Ritalik, the project's director of education, is at the heart of carrying on this legacy. And so we ask students to think about, okay, the Walden Woods, Concord, that was Thoreau's muse. 
which natural space is your muse, which place has inspired you, and if anything were to happen to that place, what would you do to protect it? Part of Walden Woods that was saved from development, Brister's Hill, is bordered on one side by a major highway. Yet the forest dampens its din, and you can walk a trail called Thoreau's Path to a quiet reflection circle. Large granite blocks bear quotes from others who carried forth the torches of the conservation and justice movements. Gandhi, Ralph Waldo Emerson, John Muir, Rachel Carson, and more. I walk the circle of luminaries and think of the children of today and tomorrow who might be inspired by Thoreau by walking through Walden Woods. I wonder what acts of civil disobedience they will be inspired to take up, how they might find their own ways to live deliberately, and what places they will help safeguard for future generations. For Living on Earth, I'm Jenny Doring in Concord, Massachusetts. Coming up, the book on biology that helps spawn a revolution in humanism. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from a friend of Sailors for the Sea, working with boaters to restore ocean health. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Henry David Thoreau was born into a century that changed scientific understanding and society. And writer Randall Fuller argues that no single book was more influential than Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species. He calls it the book that changed America and writes that when it came out in 1859, the debate about slavery was raging and civil war loomed. Its revolutionary thesis challenged, excited, and infuriated the intellectual elite, and Thoreau was an early believer. Randall Fuller teaches English at the University of Tulsa, and he spoke with Living on Earth's Helen Palmer. So, Randall Fuller, you subtitle your book, How Darwin's Theory of Evolution Ignited a Nation. When On the Origin of Species arrived in New England, the slavery debate was already pretty red hot. How did Darwin's theories play into that debate? Well, you're right. The divisiveness over slavery was already bubbling over as a result of the John Brown affair. But what Darwin's book did was enter a cultural moment where questions of competition between regions and especially the relative status of black people versus white people was incredibly heated and contentious. And so what Darwin did essentially was bring to an already very fractious and volatile moment a new take on an old discussion about racial ideology and slavery. Now, you mentioned the John Brown affair. Can you tell me exactly what that was? In October of 1859, just as Darwin was finishing his book, John Brown led a small band of white and black rebels, as it were, to raid a federal armory in Virginia in the hopes of releasing weapons to the slave population and fomenting a slave rebellion. The rebellion went horribly wrong. Brown was injured and imprisoned almost immediately. And in December 2nd, in a widely publicized trial, he was executed. And that trial galvanized American opinion about slavery. It intensified animosity throughout the two regions, the North and the South. And it occurred just as Darwin's book was arriving on these shores. 
Before we leave the issue of Harper's Ferry, I'd like you to read a piece of your book, if you wouldn't mind. It's on page 220. I think one of the important things about this is that it's almost the thesis of the book. Yeah, the argument here is that if John Brown had not attempted his raid on Harper's Ferry, a whole sequence of domino effects might not have occurred and likely Lincoln would not have won the election. And so Brown's raid is really a seminal moment in American history that led to Lincoln's election and also led after Lincoln's election to the dissolution of the Union. If you could read that, please. Lincoln's ascendance to the country's highest office was a direct result of Brown's attack on Harper's Ferry, which had divided Democrats and left them without a viable candidate. During the summer of 1860, while debates over Darwin's theory reached their apex, America's pro-slavery press had vilified Lincoln, using his ungainly visage in countless cartoons. Lincoln was portrayed as a suitor of black women, or as the missing link between blacks and whites. Sometimes he was even a guerrilla, ape Lincoln. After the election, the South immediately revolted. Former Democratic President James Buchanan addressed Congress to complain of the, quote, long-continued and intemperate interference of the Northern people with the question of slavery in the Southern states. The different sections of the Union are now arrayed against each other, and the time has arrived, so much dreaded by the father of his country, when hostile geographical parties have been formed. Buchanan was referring specifically to a series of rallies held throughout the South in support of secession, but his language made use of the same powerful metaphors of struggle and extinction that had appeared a year earlier in The Origin of the Species. That's a very interesting, to me, argument that, in fact, the importance of Harper's Ferry was indeed to give you Lincoln the president and ultimately the Civil War and emancipation. That's exactly right. And I suppose one of the things I was getting at with my book was the way a kind of cultural configuration had already developed itself in the U.S. And so when Darwin's book arrives in early December 1859, it's as though it explains everything going on in the United States about race, but also about the enormous divisions and competition between the two regions. And also this whole question of whether or not man is one race or many races on the origin of species obviously suggests that ever fitter, ever fitter variations on any species are coming along, suggests that man is heading towards a more perfect being. And where do slaves or where do black people fit in that? That's the primary conversation that Darwin's book contributed to in the first year of its arrival in the U.S. And we often forget that, that in the 1840s, a dominant scientific strain of thinking about human races had become prominent. The so-called American ethnologists argued that the various races had been created separately and in different places. The white race was the best that God had managed to do. Other races were sort of trial, experimental efforts that hadn't gone quite as well as he had initially hoped. And of course, this was enormously satisfying to the Southern slave powers. And Darwin enters into that debate by suggesting that all creatures, including human beings, share common ancestors and that, in point of fact, blacks and whites are not separate species or differently created humans, but are, in fact, brothers and sisters. 
So that obviously gives an enormous goose to the anti-slavery forces, because here is another child of God in chattel slavery. That's exactly right. So my contention is that Darwin's book initially arrives in this country and really just spreads like wildfire. On the Origin of Species is published in the U.S. a month after the British edition arrives. And it's described in all sorts of newspapers and periodicals within the first month or so. But the reason it had such widespread readership and interest had to do with the slavery question first and foremost. Now, it was Asa Gray that first brought Darwin to this country. Who was Asa Gray and how was he important in spreading the ideas? Asa Gray was the first botanist at Harvard College, and he was a world-class, largely self-taught scientist who had been in correspondence with Charles Darwin throughout the 1850s. Darwin, he liked to ask Gray questions about botany because he himself was more of a zoologist. And throughout the 1850s, Asa Gray provided loads of evidence and examples for Darwin, which eventually made their way into On the Origin of Species. In the late 1850s, a little-known scientist named Alfred Russell Wallace on his own independently came up with the exact same theory of natural selection that Darwin had come up with. And Darwin was crestfallen and believed all of his work on the theory had been for naught until he remembered that he had told Asa Gray about the theory several years earlier. So he owed an enormous debt of gratitude to Gray. And to show that gratitude, he sent Gray the first copy of Origin of Species to the shores. And Gray read it enthusiastically and takes it upon himself to become the American proselytizer of Darwin's theory. And in three essays in the summer of 1860, he argues for the legitimacy and the credibility of Darwin's work in the pages of Atlantic Monthly. But another very famous Harvard luminary was very much not convinced about Darwin. Tell me about that. It's Louis Agassiz. Louis Agassiz was the professor of zoology at Harvard College and far and away the most well-known popular scientist of his day uh, and the foremost opponent of Darwinian theory in America in 1860. And the reason that he was so vehemently opposed to Darwin's theory is because he was also the strongest advocate for the theory of special and separate creation that I discussed earlier. He was a proponent that blacks and whites and other races had been created separately, just as he believed monarch butterflies were created in specific environments. Darwin's theory threatened his own belief in special creation, and so he fought back vigorously. Now, it arrived quite soon in, in Concord, which was the home of Henry David Thoreau, among others, and there was a huge intellectual ferment going on anywhere there. What was their reception of this book? So it was mixed, as Darwin's reception has been mixed to this very day. Ralph Waldo Emerson read it in a somewhat shallow way and saw the idea of evolution as progressive and developing always to something better and more majestic. And so he read Darwin as essentially a confirmation of his own theories of transcendental progress. Bronson Alcott, who was even arguably a 
greater idealist than Emerson rejected Darwin outright. And his argument was that any theory that began with material processes and the physical was starting at the wrong end, that one had to begin with the divine spirit and work one's way down. Only Henry David Thoreau of the Transcendentalist cohort really grappled with Darwin's theory in a way that was both supple, tough-minded, and ultimately, I think, synthetic. That is to say, he was able to combine his transcendental beliefs with Darwin's materialism in a new kind of approach to nature. Were Darwin's theories actually widely accepted in the North? I mean, you've spoken about Agassiz being very opposed, but among the general population, did they go down well? They were pretty quickly absorbed into the culture. We may not believe or think that given the enormous difficulty the theory has in contemporary America, but by the late 1860s, less than a decade after the book arrived, Darwin's theories were taught in all colleges as credible theory. But you hardly mentioned the South. I mean, at this time, did these theories get down to the South and how were they received there? Finding out how Darwin's theories were received in the South is a little trickier than in the North, where we have access to diaries and journals of all of these major thinkers. But the reviews of the book, which appeared first in New England, almost immediately appeared in places like Richmond, Virginia and New Orleans. And without the kind of resistance that you might think, they were usually reviews that reported upon this interesting new theory that proposed to explain the creation of new species. As I read this book, there seems to be more than a few parallels between what's happening then and what's happening now. Do you think it has lessons for us? Well, I certainly think it does. And particularly, I think there's a cautionary tale about bending evidence or facts to a preconceived narrative or ideology. And this is why Thoreau is a sort of hero for me in the book, because he, he tries not to do that to the best of his abilities. Randall Fuller's history is The Book That Changed America. He spoke with Living on Earth's Helen Palmer. Finally, let's look beyond the headlines with Peter Dykstra. Peter's with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. And he's on the line now from Atlanta. Hi there, Peter. Hey, Steve. Would you mind if we started with a little good news this week? Well, I'm ready for that anytime. Go ahead. Well, Germany's on a pace to get 35% of its electricity from renewables this year. Well, that's impressive. There's not so much push in Washington for that right now. Or for science either. The lights are out in President Trump's science office. Oh, what's going on? Well, there's no boss for science in the White House and uh, no staff, apparently, either. But as news like the colorful presidential tweets capture headlines, episodes like Mr. Trump's abandonment of the Paris Climate Accords became background noise. Or as the president likes to say, fake news. Hmm. Yeah, well, okay. so what else do you have for us today? So let's move on to one that's a little closer to home for me here in Georgia. Southern Company, the big utility conglomerate here in Dixie, bailed on a $7 billion so-called clean coal project in Mississippi. I guess you could say these are dark days for the concept of clean coal. 
Yeah, they sure are. The Kemper plant was the nation's most ambitious clean coal experiment. With the failure of Kemper, as many predicted, clean coal is pretty much dead. It's not been a good week for Southern Company, particularly as its nuclear arm, along with Georgia Power, has invested bigly in the plant Vogel Nuclear Project's two reactors. Georgia Power and Southern Company said they expect to take over the formal management there in late July, since a key contractor, Westinghouse, has filed for bankruptcy. So uh, what's going wrong? Well, the project is at least two years behind schedule and $3 billion over budget. Well, that's a piece of change. What about history this week? What can you tell us? Well, let's stick with the nukes, because this spring marked 40 years since the peak of the anti-nuclear power movement in the U.S. 1,414 people got arrested for occupying the construction site of the Seabrook nuke plant in New Hampshire. Yeah, but in spite of those protests, one of the Seabrook nuke reactors got built. Yes, but after protests like Seabrook and accidents like Three Mile Island and Chernobyl, Wall Street's cold feet on nukes never really warmed up. And I guess uh, all these problems there in Georgia aren't going to reverse this trend, huh? I seriously doubt it, Steve. Peter Dykstra's with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. Thanks, Peter. We'll talk again soon. All right, Steve. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories at our website, loe.org. We leave you this week listening to the symphony in a southern swamp. A variety of frogs are singing. They're the nasal tones of green tree frogs and the clicking tones of cricket frogs. And leopard frogs add their chatters as percussion. Lang Elliott recorded these noisy frogs in the Apalachicola National Forest for his CD, Voices of the Swamp. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Savannah Christensen, Jenny Doring, Matt Hoish, Noble Ingram, Jamie Kaiser, Don Lyman, Liz Malloy, Alex Metzger, Helen Palmer, Rebecca Riedelmeyer, Adelaide Chen, Olivia Reardon, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from Jake Rigo. Allison Lirish Dean composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy. From Gilman Ordway and from Solar City, America's solar power provider, Solar City is dedicated to revolutionizing the way energy is delivered by giving customers a renewable alternative to fossil fuels. Information at 888-997-1703. That's 888-997-1703. PRI. 
Public Radio International.